Welcome to Canine Nation. It's Sunday, November 4th, 2018. This is episode 109. Hi and welcome. I'm Eric Brad. I'm a crossover trainer. Many years ago, I trained in a way that a lot of people call traditional training. That confrontational, force training style that said, do it or else, to your dog. And I thought that was the best way to train dogs. It's the way I was taught, and it was the way I grew up. But then I discovered mark and reward training and positive training based on behavioral science, and it changed everything about how I lived and worked with my dogs. One of the great benefits of getting involved in learning about mark and reward training was that a lot of the resources I was finding were online, and that connected me with a lot of discussion groups and a lot of new friends that I made, both online and in real life, who did that same kind of training. It was great because I got to have discussions about this new way of training that I was learning about. And many of these discussions turned on what techniques or what methods we were using to get a particular behavior or to improve our training in some new and interesting way. A lot of those discussions talked about how this kind of training was kinder to our dogs, how we weren't using so much force. And I understood that need to talk about being kinder. Back when I used to train the old traditional way, I would get the behaviors I was looking for, but my dogs really didn't look happy. Sure, they would do the behavior I asked for, and looking back on it now, it just doesn't seem right. Having seen a dog train with positive reinforcement-based training, I now know the difference. So, I understand that there can be a little bit of guilt about being less than kind to our dogs training the way I used to train. But more than anything, I found this behavioral science-based reinforcement training to be the most effective thing I've ever seen, while others seem to be very focused on the fact that it was so much kinder and nicer to our dogs. Well, if I'm honest, I think it's both. But my particular focus was being effective. The kind and nice part was just a great side benefit for me. Over time, those discussions moved on to social media, and I watched as discussions happened that started looking at different approaches and different methods and trying to find kinder ways, nicer ways, to get the behaviors that people were trying to do without using as much force. And that was great. I saw a lot of great things come out of that and a lot of great suggestions. But it seemed that over time, those discussions got more and more focused on finding fault in other methods in promoting this idea of kindness above all else. And that made me uncomfortable. But eventually, some of those discussions started turning into accusations. People were pointing the finger at other people in these discussions and talking about how they were being mean to their dogs or how that method was unnecessarily cruel. It seemed to be more about ethics and morality than it was about the effectiveness of the training. And that puzzled me, and it troubled me, because here were positive trainers who were seeking to be better, more effective, and kinder trainers with their animals, 
being so unkind to each other just in trying to get their message across. Well, I wanted to explore that, so I wrote about it. And this is my essay, Mean Dog People Suck, a Rant. Many years ago, I made a shift from force-based compulsion training with my dogs to a more positive approach. Now, please don't get me wrong. I don't mean positive as in a positive attitude or optimistic or good. It's simply training based on reinforcement and teaching my dogs what I want from them instead of stopping behavior I didn't want. A more proactive approach to communicating with my dog rather than the, hey, don't do that approach that I had used previously. So, positive training, for me, was about being empowered by the science of behavior and animal learning to do a better job communicating with my dogs. It wasn't a moral choice at all. The training I was doing with my dogs was becoming counterproductive. It wasn't working. So, I read... I learned, I practiced new methods. In the 13 years since I made that change, the conversation about positive training has evolved, and it doesn't always put the science or the training methods in the best light. I remember an online discussion I was part of about 10 years ago where we were discussing the use of mark and reward training. Many people call it clicker training. For teaching dogs to do the weave pull behavior in agility, one of the participants in that discussion challenged the method that I was using with my dog. His assertion was that my dog should never be put in a position to get it wrong. Now, if you're not familiar with agility, a dog is to enter the weave poles, a set of 12 poles, sometimes six, with the first pole on their left and weave between them. Entering with the first pole on the right is considered a fault. It is the wrong entry. But I found this fellow's challenge to me very puzzling. There are really only two ways a dog can enter those weave poles. If I reward the correct behavior and ignore the incorrect one, learning should happen. At least, that's what the science said. But this fellow introduced a new wrinkle. He said that withholding the reward for the incorrect behavior was unpleasant for my dog. The more we discussed this, the more strident his claims became. He proposed that training my dog should be errorless. My dog should never have to endure the unpleasantness of not getting a reward. It was my job as her trainer to make sure that my dog never encountered anything that she would find unpleasant or aversive. To do anything else was morally wrong. It was abusive and mean to withhold the reward from my dog. That was the first time I can remember being judged morally on my approach to training my dog. Since that conversation, it seems that issues of ethics and morals surrounding our treatment of dogs have become more and more a part of how we talk about dogs and training. How we choose to manage and train our dogs has become a reflection of the kind of people we are morally and ethically. Unfortunately, Morality can be pretty subjective. Conversations like these can devolve quickly into who is a better, more ethical dog owner or trainer, and who is a really mean, nasty bastard to their dog. 
That conversation all those years ago about weave poles didn't end well. It left me with the impression that Mr. All Positive Errorless Learning was a bit of a nut job, certainly an extremist in his perspective. I'm sure he had an opposite and no more flattering view of me. I must have seemed like a heartless prick, concerned with nothing more than getting my dog to do my bidding using clinical methods and strict rules of behavior. The irony in this is that I'm sure we both loved our dogs very much. Each of us thought we were doing the best thing for our dog. As the years have passed, I've watched literally hundreds of conversations concerning how we work with dogs and how our actions may or may not impact their well-being. These debates almost always turn on the personal viewpoints of the people involved and how they interpret the behavior of dogs. Remarkably, the last 15 years has seen tremendous advances in what we understand about the behavior of dogs. Science has at last decided that dogs are a worthy subject of study. Perhaps the most important finding that I have seen reported is just how much we have yet to learn about the meaning and motivation behind our dogs' behavior and their responses to the world and the humans that they live with. So, with no objective scales to use as measurement, it seems that individual opinions form the basis for what dogs find aversive. And what they might find pleasurable. One person's assessment that physically restraining a dog with your arms during recall training is beneficial for learning might be interpreted by another person as causing unnecessary distress and discomfort to that dog. Who is to say which observation is correct? It would be great if the dog could just tell us, but unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. When we talk about dogs. Who exactly are we talking about? Roughly 70% or more of the world's dogs do not live in pet homes. They have an entirely different life from the dogs that live with humans in their homes and with families. These are the free ranging scavenging dogs that live in villages and garbage dumps around the world. Most of them live productive lives with enough to eat, plenty of socialization, and none of the expectations placed on dogs by humans. Even knowing that these dogs are living comfortably enough to reproduce and thrive, there are those who feel it is a moral imperative to bring these dogs, quote, in from the cold, unquote, and into our human world to save them from their life on the streets. To these people, it seems immoral to leave these dogs to their unstructured, scavenging existence. Even within our domesticated dog population, there can be a tremendous variety in what any given dog likes and doesn't like. This can make things difficult when we talk about training. In a very real sense, all dogs are the same in that they share many common traits, including their preferences for what to seek out and what to avoid. It can be a matter of degrees that distinguishes a golden retriever, for example, from a dachshund in what they find tasty. Or frightening. Genetics does play a role, and even individuals within a breed or even within a litter can exhibit more or less tolerance or preference for different things. So a dog is a dog, but not exactly. To complicate matters further, the experiences of any given dog will have a large impact on the temperament of that dog. 
Science has shown that the vast majority of domestic dogs are not fearful of human contact. And yet, improper socialization experience with humans can make a dog extremely fearful and even aggressive toward humans. So, when we talk about what dogs like and what they don't like, their history and experiences will play a significant role in how those preferences were developed. Dogs in general will tend toward or away from certain things, but individual dogs may vary from that general norm. Saying that a particular dog finds something aversive or unpleasant involves quite a bit of speculation. It could be something as general and obvious as inflicting pain, or something as subtle as refusing to touch the dog to reassure them. Even then, the level of aversion or discomfort will vary from dog to dog. And then the dog's experience, their ability to cope, also comes into play. So, when we interact with our dogs, how can we know for certain if we are upsetting them and to what degree? All we can do is watch for their reactions and respond accordingly. And so we come to the important question What does it mean to be mean to our dogs? Wouldn't that involve some intention on the part of the dog owner to intentionally cause their dog discomfort? And even then, how much discomfort is too much discomfort for that particular dog? They say that into every life, a little rain must fall. Many people can find being out in the rain mildly unpleasant, but not traumatic. Unpleasant things such as rain will happen. As dog owners, do we have an obligation to teach our dogs that they can cope with a certain amount of unpleasantness? Animal behavior consultant Dr. Susan Friedman says that, quote, dogs live on planet Earth, unquote that they will encounter a wide range of naturally occurring unpleasant circumstances. Nature prepares all of us for dealing with these mundane, day-to-day, -day, aversive situations. But now, as dog training seeks to do a better and better job of teaching and working with dogs, can we go too far in protecting our dogs? Can the never-allow-your-dog-to-encounter-aversives trainers for all their good intentions, actually be setting dogs up for even greater unpleasantness because they haven't planned for low-level coping skills to deal with these kinds of unpleasant circumstances? More to the point, why are we pointing fingers at each other? Isn't sitting in judgment of someone an unpleasant experience for the person being judged? Have we become so overprotective of the dogs that the feelings of the owners matter less to us? The fellow who chastised me for letting my dog make mistakes was wrong. I know he was wrong because I now have a 10-year-old dog who is as eager to train and work with me today as she was back when I was allowing her to make mistakes and didn't give her rewards for them. Are there people out there who are deliberately cruel to dogs? I'm sure there are. But there are many more who are doing what they think is best for their dogs. There are many who aren't skilled enough to see the signs of distress in their dogs. There are many who don't understand that long-term patterns of low-level stress can also take a toll on dogs. There are many who don't see that the methods they've been taught, while seemingly effective at getting their dog to do some behavior, also take an emotional toll on their dogs. Shouldn't we be talking to those people and teaching them? instead of pointing fingers and judging them for being mean? 
I think that's the way a positive trainer should approach things. And it's certainly what I try to do. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We have over 100 episodes available both at the caninenation.ca website and also available through iTunes and other podcast directories. You can also find Canine Nation articles at the lifeisahuman.com website or follow the links under writing at caninenation.ca. There are some great podcasts out there about dogs, behavior, and training. I'd like to share two of my favorites with you. Dog Talk with Nick Benger is a weekly podcast out of the UK. Nick interviews some of the best and brightest trainers in the world. He gives you a look not just at training concepts and techniques, but also some great insight into the person he's talking with. Lots of great information and some wonderful stories from Nick's guests. You can find Nick's podcast on iTunes and all of the major podcast directories, or you can check out his website at nickbenger.com. That's N-I-C-K-B-E-N-G-E-R dot com. The Animal Training Academy podcast with Ryan Cartledge is another great interview podcast from New Zealand. Ryan's guests are from many areas of the training world, not just dogs. Ryan has interviewed horse trainers, behavioral scientists, wild animal trainers working with zoos, and lots and lots of great dog people as well. Ryan's podcast is also available at iTunes and the best podcast directories. You can find Ryan's website at animaltrainingacademy.com. So head to your favorite podcast listening app and check these out. Canine Nation is also on Facebook. You can find our Canine Nation page where we post information about the latest articles, podcasts, and news about Canine Nation events. We also have a discussion group the Canine Nation Forum. It's a place to discuss the podcast, the Canine Nation essays, life with dogs, and training our dogs, or just to share some information we found around the Internet. Thank you for listening. I'd appreciate it if you'd share this with the dog people in your life. I guess that's all for now. Until next time, have fun with your dogs. 